The scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. Hear the word of the Lord. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people of Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that he will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ron. I'd like to add my New Year's greeting to those of Quinn's and to um, welcome those of you who are visiting with us this morning, either online or in person. It's a joy to have you here, and we hope that uh, you will identify yourself to us after the service so that we might have a chance to convey to you how uh, glad we are that you are are with us and that you've come to be with us this morning. It was in the winter of 1973 that I received my first and last invitation to a ball. A friend of mine was making her debut. Having graduated from high school in Philadelphia, I had no idea what that was. But apparently in the deeper parts of the South, uh, certain Southern traditions, when a young woman reaches a certain age, she is presented 
uh, to the local social scene. And I was invited to come and be one of her escorts. My job was not simply to attend the party, but to serve as one of three escorts for this young lady. Each uh, debutante was to have three escorts. I think that's why I got invited. I was at the low end of the, of the list. But it meant driving about 10 hours from my university at Wake Forest down to Alabama. It meant renting a tux, and I didn't have a lot of money. It meant trying to figure out how to get there because I didn't have a car. But I was quite happy to do so. I even was willing to wear one of those ceremonial sashes. I'm sure there's a proper word. One of you can enlighten me at the end. If, if anybody in this congregation knows what it's called, please, please let me know. One of those sashes that you wear that makes you look like a dignitary from an Eastern European country. <laughs> but I was given pause when I learned that I was to be one of, of three escorts for this young lady. It struck me as a bit presumptuous, I think. <laughs> Today's Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany comes from the Greek word that simply means to make known or to come out. In its own way, it is a recognition. It's a celebration of Jesus' arrival on the scene, his debut. But it was a debut of a very different order than that of my friend in Alabama in 1973 when his parents brought him to the temple in Jerusalem eight days after his birth for his circumcision, they found waiting for them two unusual people, an older man, an older woman, waiting. And they had been waiting for a long time. When the baby showed up, they knew that their waiting was over. Have you ever noticed how much waiting there is in the Bible? waiting for babies, waiting for an entry into the promised land, waiting for the right king, waiting for healing, waiting for restoration, waiting for deliverance, waiting for Messiah, waiting for resurrection, waiting for coming again, waiting. Apparently, human beings and God are on two very different calendars. And this is bad news for most of us, I think. We're an antsy culture. We have a hard time waiting for food, for a web page to load, for a response to a text. Last week when I was at home in Durham, I honked my horn at somebody who was looking at his cell phone and the light turned green. Didn't he realize I had to get to Chick-fil-A? This was an urgent mission. We are people of action, of initiative. We're activists. We have a plan. We will not wait. Waiting is wasting time. Waiting is weakness. Waiting is threatening. Couldn't you feel the tension mounting on the floor of the House of Representatives earlier this week? Simeon and Anna are oriented in an entirely different way. They didn't seem to mind waiting. They went about the everyday routines of their life, and yet they were able to do so with a certain 
expectancy, an alertness. And when Jesus made his appearance, they were not caught by surprise. I think this gives us something in common. We too feel what it is like to live with a certain pace of day-to-day living, the anxiety of daily life. And yet we also find ourselves here taking time today to come and anchor our lives, to reorient ourselves week by week in worship together. We have, I trust, come to believe in the Messiah. And we're seeking to live faithfully, even while we are waiting, as difficult as that is. We have something to learn here from these two, Simeon and Anna. The scripture says, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. That's all we know. There's no long list of accomplishments here, no reason why he was chosen. Just him there. No resume. Simeon was an old man, perhaps a little unsteady on his feet these days, but with lively eyes that came from looking beyond the surface of things. He lived a life that was pointed like an arrow in a certain direction. He was living toward God. He made the decisions of his life based on what God wanted for him with a focus and purpose that was shaped by God. You know, there are a lot of things that you could do with your life, but not everything you can do is worthy of your life. You, like Anna and Simeon, were created for a purpose. I wonder if you could articulate that purpose this morning. Simeon knew what his purpose was. His and Anna's lives were shaped by that purpose. They lived their lives in preparation so that when the moment came, they were ready. We know the wisdom of preparation in almost every aspect of our lives except the spiritual dimension. We would never dream of starting a business without preparing. We would never run a race without preparing. We would never even have people over to our house without preparing in some way. And yet, when it comes to our relationship with God, We seem to take an entirely different approach. But life is about preparation. You have to know what you're preparing for, though. These two, Anna and Simeon, seemed intent on knowing God and ordering their lives around him. And as a result, they were just a couple of the very few in all of Scripture who were prepared to recognize the importance of this moment. I think it's one of the most important spiritual principles that we can master as believers in Jesus Christ. Our lives are lived in continuity, one moment to the next, one day to the next, one year to the next. And unless you interrupt the momentum that builds in your life, you will inevitably be tomorrow who you are today. 
You might know of Isaac Newton's first law of motion. A body at rest tends to stay at rest. A body in motion tends to stay in motion. In other words, the priorities that give shape to your life today will have a powerful effect on your priorities tomorrow, unless you interrupt them. We find out every year about this time that habit is way more powerful than resolution. Can I get an amen from somebody? Resolutions fail, in fact, if they don't turn into habits. A friend told me that it takes 21 days for a practice to become a habit. In my experience, that's only true with bad habits. Good habits, years in the making. That principle that you will be tomorrow who you are today is what keeps us in the Christian faith emphasizing the importance of spiritual practices like gathering for worship each week, spending time in Scripture even though it might befuddle you or bore you, to spend time each day to invite the Holy Spirit to, to connect you with your Heavenly Father in prayer, to gather together with others who name the name of Christ as Lord, to ask how we can, little by little, influence the world for the sake of the kingdom of God. These are practices that are worthy of your life, over the years of your life. These practices might sound and at times feel dull, but it is the way that Christ is formed in us, little by little, precept upon precept, says the scripture, a day at a time, across a lifetime. That's what formed Simeon and Anna and equipped them so that they were ready to recognize the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives, and it's true for us as well. Think about it for just a moment. Our culture thrives on what is novel, what is new. <clears throat> the new product, the new experience, the next relationship, the latest technology. Even the old gods are no longer satisfactory to us. We go looking for new ones. In our current cultural moment, it's no wonder that we get antsy, that we have a hard time waiting. And so we demand new gods, up-to-date gods, who will meet our needs, who will keep step with us. I think that's the darkest secret behind why we check our cell phones more than 80 times a day. But the living God is not impressed. He has heard this story before. The remarkable thing is that the living God continues to wait for us, to invite us patiently, lovingly into another way, for us to live toward God with all of its frustrations and challenges to be sure. But nonetheless, his invitation to each one of us here this morning is to live with arrow-like precision and purpose toward God. 
And there's a second thing that strikes me about Anna and Simeon, and it's summed up in these words. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon and Anna could wait for God, could submit to God's slow timetable, because they were waiting for something worth waiting for, something glorious. What the scripture calls the consolation of Israel. In other words, they trusted God to be true to his promises, and they did not demand to be let in on the timetable. But that meant waiting. Israel did not wait patiently any more than we do. Like us, they tried other ways of life. They took after other gods. They tried to find a more expedient course toward what they thought they wanted, they needed, what they deserved. But God had a different idea. And Anna and Simeon knew that what you anticipate makes the waiting worth it or not. Take, for example, the anticipation that surrounds Christmas. For the younger ones in our midst, I wonder if the toys that you received just a few days ago are now nearly as exciting as they were on that morning when you opened them. And of course, as we get older, the toys get more expensive, more sophisticated, more elaborate. But a new Tesla can quickly grow just as humdrum as a Tonka truck and way more expensive to keep up. Now, you can trade your car every year, as Detroit or Seoul or Tokyo would love for you to do, just to try to keep the buzz going the newness, the novelty, in order to keep the feeling. Or you can wake up and you can ask, maybe I was meant for more than a new car. Maybe I was meant for more than hoping that when Duke plays Carolina in a few weeks, God's team will win. (laughs) Maybe you were meant for more than the next promotion. Maybe you were meant for more than happy hour. You were, you are. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel and that means two things. It means that Israel, first of all, was looking for comfort. They were a people of the promise, the covenant people of God. And like we do at times, they were asking, has God forgotten us? Were they to be left to the mercy of any marauding army? Israel had thought that their future was full of promise, that a king like David was to, be re-est- uh, was to reestablish Israel's former days of prominence and glory. Where was he? Why is Israel suffering the shame of a diminished people? Consolation in the face of suffering. But then there is a consolation of another kind. There is the consolation of forgiveness, of being made right, of being reconciled. Can you remember a time when you were in the wrong, when you had done something hurtful to someone else, known it and felt it, betrayed a confidence, 
betrayed a friendship, choosing to leave a friend in the dust because it was more socially advantageous to be with another group? Have you stepped on somebody on the way up the corporate ladder, a competitor, a colleague? Have you taken advantage of someone? Have you faced that? We all have our stories to tell. But can you also remember being forgiven? Having your shame named and exposed and released. Reconciled to the person that you hurt. That too is consolation. Real comfort. It's the experience of having a mirror held up to your character and seeing the flaws and then being forgiven and restored, the guilt removed, the relationship healed. Israel's occupation by the Roman forces meant that they had been unfaithful to God. It was a sign of God's judgment. Indeed, they had been unfaithful choosing to worship other gods, to live in ways that betrayed their relationship with the living God of Israel who had delivered them. They needed the consolation of forgiveness for their guilt. This is what Simeon and Anna saw when they looked at the baby in Mary's arms, the consolation of Israel, God's answer, both to their suffering and their guilt. You know, in all my years of talking to folks in various difficulties of one sort or another, it often feels like they divide into two groups. There are those people who are sure that their difficulties in life are due to the fact that God is angry with them and that the things they are suffering are the direct result of their own foolishness or worse. And then there are those who are sure that their troubles are everybody else's fault. That they themselves are victims who deserve better. Do you tend one way or the other in the way that you tend to approach the brokennesses that you experience in your own life? The truth is that we are all both victims and perpetrators. We all suffer, and we are all guilty and in need of forgiveness. So we can try, as we do, and some of us are quite good at this, we can try to manage our lives, both private and public, to minimize our pain, to maximize our pleasure, to measure our risks, to hitch our wagon to the rising star, to justify our actions at every turn. Or we can, as Simeon did, surrender ourselves into the hands of the child who came not to manage, but to redeem. Your life, mine, all things. As Simeon says, to yield to Jesus is to have your life exposed, to see yourself in all your complicated and wounded arrogance and fearfulness. But the surprise is that they're there in your honest need, 
when you have laid down all the attempts to manage your life, there is where you will find the one who is born in a manger, not in a glorious palace or in a sterile hospital room, but in a feeding trough of all places, a manger. And it was not by accident. Karl Barth, one of the best-known theologians of the 20th century, certainly, regularly preached in prisons during Advent. And he once asked the inmates, what kind of place in our lives would Jesus enter? He said, don't suggest some noble, beautiful, or a decent compartment of your life where you could give the Savior a respectable reception. Not so, my friends. The place where the Savior enters in, says Bard, looks rather like the stable in Bethlehem. It is not beautiful, it's ugly. It's not cozy, it's frightening. It's not at all decent. It's in the midst of animals. You see, the proud or modest ends are but the surface of our lives. Beneath these lurks the depths, even the abyss. Down there, we are without exception beggars, people who have lost our way. Down there, says Bart, Jesus Christ set up his quarters, this stable of our lives, in this dark place, he will have communion with us. Beloved in Christ, can you see? This is a double epiphany that we're talking about. On the one hand, for us to be known in all of our fear and failure, to be exposed in the face of our betrayal and deceit and rebellion, and yet, on the other hand, to meet the one who has come into our darkest place to have communion with us, the one who has loved us to death and who has found us. That's why the angels sang at that birth. That's really what consolation is, what we hunger for. And that's not just worth waiting for. It's worth pursuing with everything you've got. Should we pray about this? Take a moment. Ask yourself, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, what are the obstacles to greater pursuit of this one who has loved and found you, a redirection of purpose, the shaping of habits that will carry you not just through the first weeks of a new year, but into the days that the Lord has for you. Lord, you know that we are weak, that even the most sincere resolution falls on the rocks of our own weakness and failure. How grateful we are that you have come for us. You did not wait for us to find you, to have the good sense, to come to our senses. You have pursued us. Come among us. You are here today to encounter us, meet us. Right now, 
in this moment by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that opened Simeon's eyes to his beautiful Savior and ours, to open our eyes to your invitation to meet you at this table, to open our hearts to respond to you with worship, humility, and faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.